Heavenly Father, as we read your word, as we read the account of this story, we ask that you would speak to us. Help us to understand this story that so many of us know so well. Help us to see what you want us to see. Help us to hear what you want us to hear. And help us to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus by the things that are displayed to us today. Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. Work in our hearts, we pray. May it be your words and not mine that speak. And so we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. On the 23rd of April this year, an announcement was made. Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Cambridge, was safely delivered of a son at 11.01 hours. He weighed 8 pounds, 7 ounces, the Duke of Cambridge for the birth. A notice has been placed on the forecourt of Buckingham Palace following the announcement of the birth of the Duchess of Cambridge's third child. It is tradition framed notice of birth goes on display on a ceremonial easel on the forecourt at the palace. Notices have been posted on the occasion of a royal birth for at least as long as Buckingham Palace has been the sovereign's official from 1837. The notice was on display for approximately 24 hours, after which it was sent to the Privy Council office so that the details could be in the Privy Council records. That's the official media release by the British Royal Household for the birth of Prince Louis Arthur Charles earlier this year. Someone needed to prepare and write this. Someone took the time to prepare and choose the words and the photos to make this announcement. Somebody had to do that. I mean, we, we have children when we just post a message on WhatsApp or Facebook. And somebody had to take the time to craft these words, to think about how to communicate this in a royal fashion. And the Christmas story is filled with heavenly media releases of what God is about to do. From angels to shepherds, they make these media releases of what God is going to do. But today our story is slightly different. It's not a media release, but it is a story of someone who will give multiple media releases and he will be the greatest person to do this. And his name is John the Baptist. And he will prepare the way for God to break into our world. But our story be begins early in the chapter. You can read about it in verses 5 to 25. But let me summarize the story really quickly. We have Zechariah, a priest. He loves God. He's an old man. He's married to Elizabeth. She's old too. And they have no children. One day he's going about his priestly stuff. He's doing his job. And this particular day, he gets voted uh, to do a special job. It's a one-of-a-lifetime kind of job. Uh, he gets chosen to go into a special room in the temple and burn incense. doesn't sound very exciting, but it only happens once in a lifetime for a priest. Uh, while he's inside this special room, an angel appears to him and tells him that his wife, his old aging wife, Elizabeth, will have a son. And they are to call him John. And this is what the angel tells him. 
and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. We saw that last week. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah doesn't believe what he hears and as a result the angel makes him mute. He can't talk. And the angel leaves Zechariah to think his behavior like any good parent. Elizabeth gets pregnant. And last week we see that Mary visits her And this is where we pick up the story. Because now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And as we explore the story today, there's three things, if we get through them, there's three things that we're going to see. We're going to see that God breaks into the comfort zone. That redemption is about relationship with God and that God's people... Prepare the way for Jesus. Now, I'm 34 years old. I'm not that old. And my kids already tire me out. Imagine what a kid in your old age to an old couple like Zachariah and Elizabeth is going to do. It's going to mess up your world. But even so, this son, this child is a blessing to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the neighbors come, they rejoice with them to see God's mercy. Now, they rejoice because like many cultures, children are a blessing and a gift. But they also rejoice because Elizabeth safely gives birth in her old age. Right? Even today, with all our medical technology and knowledge, the risk of childbirth increases with age. And here, the neighbors rejoice because Elizabeth, in her old age, delivers a child safely, as far as we know. And so they rejoice. This is not just a straightforward pregnancy. This is an old, complicated, high-risk pregnancy, and they rejoice because a child is born. They come to circumcise and name the child as they traditionally do on the eighth day, and they're surprised and shocked by what happens. They start calling the child Zachariah. And why do they do that? Well, they feel sorry for Zachariah. The guy is mute. He hasn't been able to talk for nine months and he's old. So they feel sorry for him. So they want to honor him. So they name, they start calling the child Zachariah. But Elizabeth just jumps up outright and says, no, 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 no. Thank you for the sign of honor. But no, he shall be called John. And it's culturally inappropriate. They say none of your relatives is called by this name. And so they turn to Zechariah. Women really don't have much of a voice, so they turn to Zechariah. Come on, back us up here. Gets a tablet and he writes, his name is John. And instantly his mouth is open and he speaks after nine months of silence. He speaks. And what does he say? Well, we're going to see what he says later on. But he blesses God, he praises and rejoices him in everything that he has done. Now the neighbors and relatives realize that something special is happening here. And fear comes upon them. 
They tell everyone who might listen. It just spreads throughout the countryside. But they also laid these things up in their hearts and asked, what then will this child be? God breaks into the aging lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth with a child. He breaks into the comfort zone of what he can do the physical body of a person. He opens up the womb of Elizabeth, a barren woman in her old age. And if you know the Bible stories, God opening up the womb of barren women is nothing new. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, and in each of these cases, the, the child, the son, is destined with propelling the purposes of God forward. And here John is no different. And it doesn't end there with Zechariah and Elizabeth. God continues to break into the lives of ordinary people. The neighbours, the relatives witness this act of God breaking into their world. They recognise that it's not just shaking up the world of Zechariah and Elizabeth. This is going to change their world as well. God defies their culture and tradition by proclaiming favour on them. Because that's what's... That's what John means. John means God shows favor. And he reminds them that God is not dead. The Holy Spirit fills Zechariah and he prophesies, as we will see. And this is something that these people have not seen for 400 years. If you flick to your Bibles, the end of the Old Testament is Malachi, and then you've got Matthew. And there's 400 years there where God is silent to his people. And here we have Zechariah publicly speaking and prophetically speaking through the Holy Spirit 400 years after God's last prophet. And these people, and they don't know it, but they witness the birth of the prophet who will prepare the way for what God is about to do. And this is what God does. This is what the gospel is all about. This is what Jesus is all about. He shows up. When God shows up in life, he breaks into our comfort zones. All of life, our ideas, our dreams, our expectations, our values, our culture, our passions, everything is shaken up when God appears. When God shows up, our comfort zones are shaken. And it happens at the personal level, but it also happens at the social level. See, with Zechariah, when God breaks into his life, it's not just a private affair. It changes the world around him. As you continue in the story, we see the birth of the church and they begin to change the world around them. When we really, when we truly encounter Jesus, things change. It causes a response in us. That response might be joy, it might be fear, it might be conviction, it might be a combination of all the above or others. Jesus changes us, he transforms us, but it also affects and changes the world around us. And whether that change, whether that response is positive or negative depends largely on how they see Jesus. Whether they respond in joy, fear or anticipation of what God is doing. And we can't control how they will respond. But we can choose how we respond when God breaks into our lives. We can choose to accept Jesus, we can choose to reject him. Why does God do this? Why does God break into our comfort zones? What is it 
that he is trying to achieve. Zechariah writes, his name is John, and immediately his mouth is open and he speaks, blessing God. And what does he say? We see this in verse 67 onwards. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. This, this first section of this prophecy uh, from verse 68 to 75 is all about the past. Uh, this prophecy talks and looks back at what God has done. God visited his people, he redeemed them, he has raised up this horn of salvation. Horn is a symbol of power. right? You think about the rhino, you think about an elephant with tusks, you think about triceratops, you think of, you think about, you see horns, you see them, they're scary. You don't want to mess with them. So God raises up this horn of salvation. He saves his people from their enemies and those who hate them. He has promised to Abraham and David through the mouth of prophets that he would do these things and Zechariah says they are done. And we saw last week that God is doing something new in the scheme of history and he is going to fulfill his promises. And a lot of people in Zechariah's day wondered if God would really keep his promises to them. For 400 years, the prophets had not spoken. God had not spoken by his spirit. And people had questions. Is God going to keep his promise? I wonder if we might share those same doubts. I do sometimes. Is God really going to keep his promise? To his people. We wait for God to show up in some extraordinary extraordinary event. We we hear stories of people encountering God in amazing ways. We wonder, is God going to work in my life as he says he will? But this is the thing that Zechariah's prophecy reminds us that God has kept his promise. It is done. He's kept his promise. And specifically, especially now at Christmas, we're reminded that he has given us Jesus. He has given us Jesus. He's kept his promise. He visits us in Jesus. He redeems us in Jesus. And in Jesus, this horn of salvation is lifted up. He comes to earth as a baby, walking among us. And he grows into a man that would give his life, who would sacrifice his life on the cross. And through his death and resurrection, redeem his people into a relationship with God. God has kept his promise. There are extraordinary, extraordinary events in the Christmas story. After all, God is breaking into history. But again, when we step back and we take a look at the circumstances of this story, there's actually nothing particularly extraordinary about them. When you look at the lives of the people and the things that happen, there's nothing extraordinary except when God comes in and changes them. The, Christian st- the Christmas story is a humble one, which invites us to see a God who brings hope, who brings joy and peace into ordinary, everyday lives, into our lives. <clears throat> this is a God who keeps his promise. His timing isn't always our timing, but he keeps his promises. And I can't count how many times God comes through right at the last moment. I don't know if you've had that happen as well. Just at the last moment, God comes through. God is 
faithful, he is good, and he will keep his promise. Paul says this to the Christians, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to you, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 2 Corinthians 1.19.20 In Jesus, God's promises are yes and amen. God will keep his promise. Now the second section of this prophecy, uh, verses 74 and 75, looks at God's purpose. Why does God break into our culture? Why does God break into our world and shake everything up? What is God's purpose in redeeming his people? Why does God go through all this effort of redeeming and saving people? He saves his people from their enemies and those who hate them so that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And again, we're going to look back at another Bible story, the story of the Exodus. This What God is doing here recalls what he does in the Exodus, where God comes and he visits and he redeems his people from slavery in Egypt. In the story, the Exodus story, God chooses and sends Moses to Pharaoh, to the king of Egypt, to tell him to release the Israelites from slavery. What did God say to Pharaoh? Little pop quiz. What did God say to Pharaoh? Let my people go. Why? That they may serve me. We always talk about the let people go part. Why? That they may serve me. Let my people go that they may serve me. And he says it eight, nine, ten times. What did it look like? God wanted his people to be free so that they could worship him. When God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt... He sets about establishing a relationship with his people. And this is not just seen in a spiritual sense, but in a social arena as well. What does he do? When God brings the people of of Israel out of Egypt, what does he do? He starts giving them laws, and we read the laws, and we're like, what's the point? But what God is doing as he gives the law is he is setting up a framework for all of society, all of community, all of life to relate with him and to relate with other people. That's what the laws are all about. When you take the time to sit and actually understand what the laws are about, they are about how people relate to God and how they relate to other people. And so what God is doing is he is setting his people free to worship him, to live in a way that honors him, and honours people, and serves people. And so, worship impacts every arena of life. It impacts the way you live. Let Let me explain this. Because see, if you worship money, if your life pursuit is money, then everything you do will be about getting more money. The way you treat people, the way that you work, your work ethic, the way that you study, what you study, All your choices are determined about how you will get more money. If you worship family, then you make choices that will only 
that will impact your family. I'm going to spend more time with my family and less time with my friends. I'm going to take my family on a holiday to get away from all this rubble. Every decision you make is determined by what you worship. You worship power and status, then you will do anything to get recognized by people. And the list goes on. What you worship determines how you live. And God sets his people free to worship him so they can get the best out of life. God's commandments and his laws are a reflection of his character, his priorities and his values. And when you look at them, yes, again, they don't really make sense in our day and age sometimes, but they reflect the heart of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against these things there is no law. And when you look at the laws, you look at the commandments of God, they reflect his heart. And he gives them to his people so that as they worship him, they might reflect him also. When a student wears a school uniform, their behaviour in public is expected to reflect well on the school. How many times have you, do you remember at school assembly, or for those of you still at school, if you've got your uniform on, you behave yourself out there. Your, your behaviour makes it look good or bad. I heard that almost weekly, partly because our train station was right in the middle of the city, so you'd see us everywhere. Right? School uniform reflects the, beha- the, the, the school. Employee who is working contracts and working with other companies is expected to uphold the business, business mission and vision. He, makes start, he starts making dodgy deals or cheating customers that makes the business look bad. Got friends who have a business and they've got a dodgy salesman, it makes them look bad. And a Christian who doesn't reflect the character and heart of God makes God look bad. And so the enemies of God, you know, we, we, we talk about being saved, we talk about the enemies, we talk about redemption. These things are not necessarily physical or political. When God talks about salvation and redeeming his people, it's not necessarily just physical or political things in our life. But it is anything that stops us from serving and worshipping God. They are enemies. Anything that stops us from living our lives God's way is the enemy. And just as God saves the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, Jesus comes to save us if we would trust in him, he saves us from sin. He saves us from anything that would stop us from living God's way. And he forgives and he redeems us from sin. And the result is that we serve God, that we worship God and we allow our lives to be transformed, to be in line with his character and his heart. And it is only when we are free that we can then truly worship God to serve him without fear and to live in holiness and righteousness, to live his way with his help. In the last part of this prophecy, Zechariah moves on from what God has done and why God does it to what God will do through his son, John. And his role as God's God's act of salvation and redemption come in. He will be a prophet. He will prepare the way for the Lord 
and point people to find salvation and forgiveness of sin. John is a herald. Or he's the MC at his best friend's wedding. I don't know how many weddings you've been to. I don't know how many receptions you've been to. But at the reception, the MC usually will introduce the bridal party uh, and he will announce each member of the bridal party. <clears throat> and a good MC, before the bride and groom enter though, will usually rally up the crowd, get, get a, applause and a cheer and just lots of noise as the bride and groom enter. And all eyes, where are they? They're on the bride and groom, not on the MC. And John is the MC. John is God's MC who is preparing the way for Jesus to enter the world stage. <clears throat> and when John begins his ministry, he went into all the region around Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> and he proclaims, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby Jesus is the sunrise who shall visit us from on to give us light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the thing about God. God chooses to employ people in proclaiming the good news of his salvation and redemption. Yes, he had his angels, but in the end, it is John and God's people who will prepare the way for Jesus. God calls his people today to be heralds, to be MCs of the good news, to point the way to Jesus for people to find salvation and forgiveness for sin. At the end of Luke's gospel, he tells the story of two disciples after Jesus has died and they're confused about Jesus. They're confused about his life and why he would die. They thought that he would come to defeat their physical and political enemies. And instead he dies on the cross at the hands of their enemies. But then as they're walking on this journey, Jesus appears to them and clarifies everything from the Bible. And what does he say to them? Thus it is written that the Christ suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Like John, if we know and we believe and trust in Jesus, and we believe that he suffered and died for the forgiveness of our sins, then we are witnesses. And we are to proclaim this repentance to all people. There's this amazing moment later in the, in the gospel, uh, in, in Luke's gospel, where Jesus is talking about John. John's sent some uh, disciples to come to him and just clarify some things. And when he leaves, Jesus is talking to the crowd and he says this. This is in chapter 7, uh, Luke chapter 7. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. That's a pretty big statement. Because all of you are born of women and John is greater than you. To Jesus, John is the greatest person to ever live in history. Why? Because John prepared the way for Jesus. John prepares the way for Jesus to arrive. But then Jesus says something astonishing. And it, it, it really takes something to let this sink in. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, 
the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Anyone who puts their trust in Jesus, who believes in Jesus and belongs to Jesus is in the kingdom of God. And the one who is least, bottom of the rung, in the kingdom of God is greater than John. When John is held up in high esteem by Jesus, Jesus says, if you're the bottom of the ladder in the kingdom of God, you're greater than John. What's he saying? What's he saying there? He says that anyone who puts their trust and faith in Jesus is greater than John because here's the difference. John points forward to Jesus. He doesn't know what Jesus is going to do. He has no idea what it's going to look like. All he knows that is Jesus is God's agent for salvation and redemption and he points to him. That's all he knows. But when you put your trust and faith in Jesus, you get to point back. You get to go, I actually know what God has done. It's not an unknown to me. I get to point back. Look, Jesus has done it. He has died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And our testimony is greater than that of John. And for that reason, we are greater than John. And this is what Zechariah does. He, he points to what God has done. And we get to point back to what God has done. God has visited and redeemed his people. And because of the tender mercy of our God, Jesus is the sunrise who has visited us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And that is the testimony, that is the witness that we can give. The Christmas story, the story of John's birth, reminds us that God seeks and he wants to visit and redeem his people. And he wants to do that today just as he did millennia ago. God breaks into our world. He breaks into our comfort zone with the good news of Jesus because he wants a relationship with his people, his creation, you and me. But he doesn't want just any kind of relationship, but a relationship that is filled with the best of life that only he can offer. And so great is his desire to visit and redeem us, raises up a horn of salvation and he sends Jesus to us beginning as a humble baby, but one who will grow to give us the greatest gift, the gift of God himself. And he does this by giving up his life through death on the cross. And through the cross he saves and delivers people from their enemies so that we can worship and serve him without fear. That is, we can live life God's way with all the best that he can offer. And like John we are called to prepare the way for Jesus. To prepare the way in people's life for Jesus to break in and proclaim the good news of redemption and salvation that is found in the forgiveness of, in the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. And so as we remember this story, as we, we look at the Christmas story, God is breaking into this world to visit, to redeem his people. And for those who witness this, to proclaim it to the nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we 
come and we ask that you would visit us and you have. You have come in the Lord Jesus and you have given us your Holy Spirit that dwells within us and you visit us and you have redeemed us by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. Help us to be reminded of the amazing news of the Christmas story. To be reminded that you are a God who breaks in to restore and enter into relationship with us and with all people. And help us to be people who are free from our enemies that might stop us from living your way, that we might testify and be witnesses of a God who has come in the form of a baby to redeem his world for the forgiveness of sins. Help us as we continue on this week as we encounter people, as we share the festivities, to be people who will testify and witness and point to you in all that you have done. And so we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.